What does the preponderance of your life look like? Is your life characterized by light and obedience to Christ, or is it characterized by walking in sin and darkness and disobedience to Christ? Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom Pennington begins a new 10-part series titled The Christian's DNA. As we've learned from science, DNA is an organic chemical of complex molecular structure that's found in cells and in many viruses. Every person, all of us, inherit DNA from our parents. DNA is unique to every individual, and yet you've often heard it said, like father, like son, or like mother, like daughter. But did you know the same is also true spiritually? We as Christian brothers and sisters in Christ all share our Father's DNA, and we are called to pursue becoming like Him in the way in which we live. Tom, why must we as Christians pursue becoming like our Savior in the way that we live? Because ultimately it proves whether we're Christians or not. You know, in 1 John, the Apostle John is really teaching us that believing the right things about Jesus and the gospel, simply believing those facts to be true, doesn't prove we're Christians any more than the fact that the demons believe those things to be true. Instead, genuine Christians also demonstrate a pattern of obedience to Jesus Christ in the way that they live. What that means practically is that we deny sin and pursue righteousness. When we examine our hearts, when we look at how we interact with sin, how we interact with righteousness, it tells us whether we're Christian or not. Those that obey God and live for God demonstrate that they've truly believed in Jesus Christ. So nothing could be more important than what we'll study together today. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, DNA is an organic chemical of complex molecular structure that's found in cells and in many viruses. DNA actually codes genetic information for the transmission of inherited traits. The article goes on to say that the chemical DNA was first discovered in 1869, but its role in genetic inheritance was not demonstrated until 1943. In 1953, James Watson and Francis Crick determined that the structure of DNA is a double helix polymer, a spiral consisting of two DNA strands wound around each other, and that's where you, you see that common picture of DNA. I think you understand this, but you, we all inherit our DNA from our parents. You receive 50% of your DNA from each of your parents. They, in turn, receive 50% of their DNA from their parents and so forth all the way back in human history. However, the mix of your parents' DNA that you inherit is unique to you. It doesn't matter how many siblings you have, the specific combination of DNA that is yours from your parents is unique to you. I have nine siblings, and none of us share the same DNA, although it comes from our parents. 
It is true then, when you think about it, that your DNA comes from your parents and that you are, in fact, the product of their genes. All of those colloquialisms and euphemisms are true. The nut doesn't fall very far from the tree. You really are a chip off the old block, like parent, like children. Well, that's not only true physically, that is also true spiritually. As Christian brothers and sisters, if you have been truly redeemed, if you have been saved by the work of the Spirit of God, then we all share our Father's DNA. We are, according to 2 Peter 1 verse 4, partakers of the divine nature. According to Colossians 3.10, we have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. You are a new creation in Jesus Christ, and you, Christian, have your Father's DNA. In the text that we come to in our study in 1 John today, John makes a profound connection for us between the reality of our spiritual DNA and how we live. The connection between the genes that are ours because of our new Father and the pattern of our lives. Now, just to remind you, as we begin a new section today in 1 John, this book, the theme of 1 John, is the tests of eternal life. Look at chapter 5, verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Christ designed this book The Spirit inspired it, and John wrote it in order to help true believers gain personal assurance of their salvation. Now, the structure of this book, as I've noted for you, is a little difficult to follow, but two images help us understand the structure. Think of the structure of 1 John like the musical themes in a symphony that the composer repeats again and again with each new movement, but each new movement, while it contains the same basic notes and themes, does so with distinct variations. Or think of the structure of 1 John like a spiral staircase, and the three tests of eternal life hang down the center of that spiral staircase, and as this letter unfolds, John walks around that spiral staircase again and again, examining these three tests from different vantage points. So the three tests of eternal life recur in three cycles or three movements of the symphony, if you will. That's how this book is structured. Now, last week, we finished the first movement or the first cycle, and that is from chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 27. All three tests were there, the tests of obedience to Jesus Christ and His Word, the test of love for God and His people, the test of faith in the biblical Jesus and the biblical gospel. Today, we begin the second cycle or the second movement, and we're going to see these same three tests again. This second cycle runs from chapter 2, verse 28, through chapter 4, verse 6. It begins with the test of obedience, 
verse 28 of chapter 2 through chapter 3, verse 10. Then he repeats the test of love for God and his people, chapter 3, verse 11, through the end of the chapter, verse 24. And then finally, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, he comes back to the third test, which is faith in Jesus Christ and his gospel. Now, John begins this second movement by returning, as you can see, to the the test of obedience that began the first movement as well. So we have the same test, the test of obedience, beginning the first movement of the first cycle of, of this book and beginning the second as well. Now, there are similarities between these two tests of obedience. Both are here to distinguish true Christians from false Christians. You remember false Christians are those who say they're Christians, but they haven't really been changed. They haven't experienced the new birth. They're attached to the church. They claim Christ, but they've never truly had a heart change. These tests of obedience are here to distinguish one from the other. Both of these tests of obedience focus on patterns, patterns of sin and obedience. In the first cycle, it was walking in the light or walking in the darkness. In the second cycle, it's practicing sin or practicing righteousness. Both of them are characterized by stark contrasts. You have in the first, you you have light versus darkness, and in the second, sin versus righteousness. Both of them mention the reason for Jesus' first coming. In cycle one, His death for sin as our propitiation, the satisfaction of God's justice. In the second cycle, we learn that the Son of God appeared to take away sin and to destroy the work of the devil. But while they are similar, there are also a couple of important differences between these two different tests of obedience. They focus on, they, they both mention both advents of Christ, but they focus on two separate advents. Cycle one focuses on the incarnation. Cycle two focuses on the return of Christ, as we'll see. But another really important difference between these two is that they call attention to different aspects of our relationship to God. In the first cycle, the, the description of our relationship to God is having fellowship with God. In the second cycle, it's on being children of God, which is a more intimate thing. As we come again to the test of obedience, let me just remind you of what the point is. John is telling us that believing the right things about Jesus and his gospel Simply believing those facts to be true does not prove that you have eternal life. Genuine Christians also demonstrate a pattern of obedience to Christ. There's the rejection of sin on the one hand, and there's the pursuit of righteousness on the other. Now, let me give you an overview of this this second cycle of the test of obedience. It runs from chapter 2, verse 28, down through chapter 3, verse 10. And essentially, it's teaching this. Our relationship to sin and to righteousness shows three things. First of all, it shows our real birth. It shows our real birth. Are we dead in sin or have we been born of God? Secondly, it shows our real master, 
Chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, are we slaves of self and sin or are we slaves of Christ? And our relationship to sin and righteousness also shows, thirdly, our real Father. Chapter 3, verses 7 to 10, are we children of God or are we children of the devil? Now, before we, or as we begin today, we start with this first section, our relationship to sin and righteousness shows our real birth. When you look at how you interact with sin and how you interact with righteousness, it tells you whether you are still dead in your sins, the state in which you and I and everyone else was born, or whether you have in fact experienced the new birth. You've been born of God. Let's read it together. 1 John chapter, three, chapter 2, rather, verse 28. And I'll read not only the section we're looking at today, but I'll read through this entire second test just so we get the, the flow of the, the author's thought. Chapter 2, verse 28. Now, little children, abide in him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, Now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness, You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as He is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother." Now, the point of this entire section is that a true Christian has been born of God and will therefore be like his father in character and in conduct, like father, like child. If we have been born of God, we have his DNA, and if we have God's DNA, then our character and our conduct will reflect the nature of our father. Now, John lays out the core argument, logical argument, at the end of chapter 2 in verses 28 and 29. But he does so 
in a reverse way because of what he wants to emphasize. So let me just show you his argument in its logical order, which is exactly backwards from what we read in verses 28 and 29. So here's his argument. First part of his argument is this, every true Christian has been born of God. That's the end of verse 29. Every true Christian has been born of God. Second point of argument, having been born of God, every true Christian will display the righteous character of his Father by consistently practicing righteousness. That's the beginning of verse 29. Third part of his argument is that everyone who perseveres in practicing righteousness, in other words, every true Christian will have confidence when Christ returns and judges. That's his argument. And he he treats it as I said, in a reverse fashion. Now, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, he explains further implications of this new birth. But at the core of this first part of this paragraph is, in fact, this concept of the new birth. And in this passage, John gives us several crucial insights into what it means to be born of God several crucial insights. Let's look at them together. The first insight is that if we have been born of God, the reality of that new birth will be certified at Jesus' revelation, that is, at at His coming. It'll be certified at His coming. When Christ returns, He will openly declare whether we have been born of God or whether we are still dead in our sins. That's the point of verse 28. Now, he begins before he gets to the return of Christ. He says, we have one basic duty until he comes, until his revelation, and that duty is abide. Notice verse 28. Now, little children, and by the way, that expression marks the beginning of a new section. That's why I've marked it out this way, as do the themes. He says, now, little children, in light of things as they now stand, and here's the command, the duty, abide in Him. Now, the pronoun Him, the rest of the verse will make it clear that we're talking about Jesus Christ. So, abide in Jesus Christ. We've already encountered this word abide a number of times, and let me define it for you again. It simply means there's nothing mystical in this sense of abide. It means to stay. It means to remain. Here's the the leading Greek lexicon. It defines this word this way. It is not to leave a certain realm or sphere, to remain, to continue, to abide. As I noted for you last week, to remain in Christ means to persevere, to endure, to persevere in faith in Jesus Christ and His gospel. Go back to chapter 2, verse 24. We saw this in this verse. As for you, let that abide in you. Let it remain in you which you heard from the beginning. That is the truth about Jesus, the truth about His gospel, how we are made right with God. Keep on believing that gospel that you believed at the beginning. Don't be swayed off of that by some suave or not suave, false teacher. Don't be carried away with false doctrine. 
persevere in believing in the biblical Jesus and the biblical gospel and persevere in obeying Christ, in obedience to Christ. Go down to chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides, there's our word, who remains in Christ, who continues to believe in Him, sins. doesn't mean you never sin. We've already said earlier in 1 John, he says, believers sin, and they, seek, they confess their sins, they deal with their sin. It's talking about what what's characterizes your life. Remember the image in the first test, walking in the darkness or walking in the light? What does the preponderance of your life look like? Is your life characterized by light and obedience to Christ, or is it characterized by walking in sin and darkness and disobedience to Christ? That's the point. And he says, no one who abides in him continues to sin unabated, the pattern of his life. No one who sins like that has seen Christ or knows him. So this is a call to persevere, to persevere in believing the biblical gospel, and that includes a call to continue following Jesus Christ as his disciple, to obey him. This is not passive. It's not something that happens to us. We don't abide by just sort of sitting and, you know, crossing our legs and looping our fingers and repeating some mantra. That's not what this abiding is. It's an active thing. It's in the present tense. We must persevere in faith and obedience. As you know, I was in Baltimore last week doing a a conference there, and I got to visit, Sheila and I did with our friends, we got to visit the grave of J. Gresham Machen. Some of you may not have heard his name, J. Gresham Machen. He was a professor at Princeton Seminary and a a Presbyterian pastor in the early 1900s, at least that was the thrust of his ministry. He was responsible in those years for protecting the Christian faith from liberalism in the early 1900s here in the U.S. He is one who helped articulate what are called the fundamentals of the Christian faith. You've heard that expression. He helped articulate those and inspired an entire generation to battle for the truth of Scripture. When I visited his grave, I I loved being there because on one side of his grave is the of his uh, tombstone is the information you would expect, the, the name and the dates. But on the other side of his grave are these Greek words, pistos akri thanatu. It's taken from Revelation 2.10, and it means faithful until death. Faithful until death. That, brothers and sisters, is the kind of perseverance you are called to. Faithful until death. Keep on believing. John says, remain in Christ. Keep on believing in the biblical Christ and the biblical gospel and keep following Him. Keep walking in a pattern of obedience. Now, let me be clear. Perseverance or enduring in faith and obedience is not the cause of salvation. It is the evidence of it. It's not a replacement for faith. It is the proof of true faith. Our Lord made this so clear in His ministry. Go back to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, you'll remember that several times in John, people attach to Jesus, but it becomes pretty clear that their attachment is not real salvation. It's not truly following Him. You see that here in John 8, verse 30. 
It says, as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. And immediately you're going, oh, great, let's celebrate. They're believers, they're followers of Christ. Not so fast, verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue, there's our word, if you remain, if you stay in my word and what I've taught you, then you are truly disciples of mine. If you know what I've taught you, if you believe what I've taught you, and you live in obedience to what I've taught you, then you are truly disciples of mine. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, The Christian's DNA. Tom will have part two for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from The Word Unleashed. That's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Music